Welcome to the Acoustic Guitar Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, joined for this episode by co-host Jeffrey Pepper Rogers. And today, we've got Beatlemania, with a lively roundtable discussion chock full of inspiring musical examples all about arranging and performing the music of the Beatles on acoustic guitar. Like so many musicians of a certain generation, our guests started playing guitar in large part because of the Beatles. Lawrence Juber has been playing Beatles tunes for 60 years and seriously arranging them for fingerstyle guitar since the mid-1990s, after playing alongside Paul McCartney as a member of Wings. Guitarist, composer, and professor of jazz studies Mimi Fox taught herself to play guitar at 10 years old when her cousin gifted her a copy of Rubber Soul. Though perhaps best known for his klezmer, folk, and jazz playing, Tim Sparks was also galvanized by the Beatles in his youth. Each of our guests take a different approach to arranging, adapting, reharmonizing, and reimagining these tunes. After you've listened to their conversation, I encourage you to check out the links in our show notes to learn more about them and hear even more of their music. You'll also find the link to support the Acoustic Guitar Podcast on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash acoustic-guitar-plus. Thanks for listening and chipping in if you can. Now I'll kick things over to Mimi Fox, who tells us about the first Beatles song she learned. You know, it's still in my brain. I could play it two ways. Um, it would be, uh, I've Just Seen a Face, which is the first song from the Rubber Soul album. It's still in my brain. I've just seen a face, I can't forget the time or place where we just met. Still in my brain, It exactly 50 plus years later, still in my brain. But I learned every song from that album. It's, I remember when I worked out my own arrangement of the intro to Michelle. So I came up with... Uh... And I was so excited when I was 10 and I had worked that out. You know, that just seemed... I remember I brought my guitar to school and I played that, but... Uh... Uh, actually, a song that I recorded on my most recent album is, you know, Lawrence was talking about John's songwriting because I was so enamored with Paul and I had arranged so many of his pieces for solo guitar. But anyway, recently I recorded um, In My Life. And, you know, again, it's just so... etc. So yeah, and so to me that um, that's another song from the album that now I really appreciate. Um, but anyway, yeah, for sure. I've just seen a face, it will always be in my brain. Uh, and uh, that was the second song I learned the first one will make Lawrence and Tim and hopefully all of you laugh was by another band a lesser known uh, from the British invasion, uh, the animals. Um, who I was also very fond of when I was 10. So anyway, that, that concludes this portion. <laughs> Tim, what about you? What was your first one? Well, me, I don't know. I, 
I enjoyed hearing all the Beatles tunes uh, from the early 60s. But then, you know, I was also listening to Hendrix. And I, I, I guess the, the album that when I was really coming of age that impressed me the most was Sgt. Pepper's, that that album. And uh, in the White Album, I learned Rocky Raccoon. That was one I learned to play. It's more like years later, I came back to the Beatles. And, and uh, but when I think about this whole Beatles thing now is... Uh, you know, there's a famous saying by Dante, the Italian Renaissance or Italian medieval, medieval poet, who said that uh, what we call it modern is what we haven't decided whether or not we want to keep it collectively as a civilization. And I think what's happened now is after uh, after that, those 60 years, uh, uh, the Beatles material stands up and uh, it's kind of being appreciated in a different light because Actually, you know, in the period right after the Beatles in the 70s, 80s, you know, people heard so much Beatles, they're just kind of tired of it, you know, I mean, and when you heard Beatles bands, they were just trying to dress up like the Beatles and sound exactly like them. But uh, now there's a very interesting uh, universe of people who are doing interpretations. It's very rich, rich kind of quality, I think. The dressing up thing we call boots and suits. <laughs> but I mean... It- it's interesting because Mimi did her arrangement of "In My Life" in the original key in A, but you've got you've done it up the octave. When I went to arrange it, and this was in the eighties, when she was very you know kind of close to John's death, I and I didn't think about doing it up the octave. I just it just felt dark. And I ended up doing it, doing it in D. And just placement, where you put the arrangement on the guitar, makes a big difference to how it speaks. Are you going to, you know, my choice is, do I go to the original key? Do I find a place to put it on guitar that is guitaristically satisfying? Because that's a really important cr- criteria for me. Yeah, I mean, for guitarists, obviously, for solo guitar, it's a it's a different world. And obviously, A and D give us the opportunity of using open strings. It's their familiar tonalities. Um, I also play Blackbird in the original key because um, it just feels right. And maybe somewhere in my musical memory, you know, Tim, you were talking about how you know, the Beatles were really uh, emblematic of the era that we were all living through, everything that we were, you know, going through. And so somewhere it's sort of like in a musical memory, it's stored in there in a certain in a certain way. So I learned the original arrangement of Blackbird, but then when I went to do my own, um, I, I put in a little plug for Acoustic Guitar Magazine, I actually did a session on Blackbird, and uh, you can find it online, and it, it was a lot of fun to play it and, and teach it. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, there's something nice about the original keys and there's something nice about exploring the different keys. It's all what we feel. Yeah, I, I found that I couldn't work the melody into the Blackbird accompaniment because the accompaniment is so uh, soft. What do you hear my weird, what do you hear my weird uh, ass well, I, What I've done is I did it, I do it in Daggad in the key of A and then it all works out that way nice i do it in drop d 
And and going to Mimi's comment about you know, having the open strings, I mean, that's one of the advantages of using an altered tuning of some kind, whether it's a drop D or a dagget or whatever, is that it does give you more flexibility in the bottom end. And, you know, because Paul's bass lines can be so important in the, in the, the texture of this stuff. I mean, it's like um, I do, I saw her standing there in dagget in D because that way I can... I can get, when I go to the five chord, I have the open string. If you stick with the original key, it, you don't have that flexibility. I wanted to maybe uh, circle back a little bit to something that Lawrence said uh, a little while ago about sort of the, um, all the layers in these songs. Cause, I mean, they not only have the really strong melodies, they not only have these genius chord progressions, but uh, especially after the very early years, I mean, they have so many counter melodies, instrumental interludes on other instruments. They have, even like the bass lines are so melodic often. So I'm wondering uh, when you set out to do a song like that on one guitar, you've got two hands, you know, uh, how do you go about sort of, you know, making an impression of all of that, uh, all those different parts, which a lot of times they seem all seem so integral to the songs. Well, you know, I, I'll jump in there. I'll, sh I'll show a song I got. Just taking the melody of the song and uh, coloring it in with some interesting jazz chords that are different from the original and give a different insight into the tune, a different feel. I particularly like the way the song in the melody has this uh, that uh, E7 sharp nine that's in the melody. So there's an example. That's cool. That makes me think of this arrangement that I did of Day Tripper on the baritone guitar. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out my baritone for a sec. What you know I've got the um, I try to um, you know take these pieces and then think of because they were so perfect as they were written and we were you know Jeffrey you were talking about the layers all of the different things so I try to imply the layers uh, through um, a jazz lens sometimes and come up with different things. So for instance. Come in now. 
right? So I've got that, but then when I come, so let's see. Let's see. And so I'm, I'm keep trying to keep that infectious groove going. I picked a baritone, which then is much more similar to a bass, you know, and then, and then applying the melody in octaves, which is a more of a jazz technique. And I think, you know, kicks it off. And then when I come to that second part, when it modulates to A, you know, I go right into a jazz bass line. Cause for me, as a jazz musician, this bass line, sort of sounds to me like could be like all blues I and mean, it's just such an infectious bass line so anyway so for me it's just sort of all connected and then I get the harmonics in there um, and it's a very guitaristic kind of thing that, that you can do so I like to use everything the guitar gives me um, to try to create that layering and imply it uh, without having to have a whole band with me, which is kind of cool. And of course, having a strong rhythmic drive is very helpful for that. So anyway. See, I do it in Dagad in D. Because I like to keep the the parts consistently going, you know, whether it's two or sometimes three parts. But I love the counterpoint. And I think part of it for me is just the challenge of, of making, making the bass line and the melody work together. If, if you had advice for someone making their own arrangement of a Beatles tune on solo guitar, what would you say is something, you gotta make sure you nail this, or start with this, or... Uh, you know, what would you say? I'd say, uh, I'll jump in here. Um, often when people are trying to play guitar, they, they think of chords, they start, say you think C, well you think of putting your finger on the root of the chord and, and making the, uh, the chord, but a lot of the coolest stuff comes from starting from the melody and, and finding the chord going the other way, going down. And even if you don't know anything about theory, they're just exploring the different shapes and intuitively recognizing those can be helpful. And I'd like to show you a little example. Uh, recently, as, uh, this is a, a Lenny Bro arrangement of Hard Day's Night, or a sample of it. playing these shapes, this uh, tritone kind of combination for a seventh chord, like there's A and then this is D7. So uh, I, I took some of that and I did this arrangement of...
that's full of these these chord shapes that that instead of having a base of the chord that names the note like here instead of this is E7 but I'm making a voicing that has the seventh in the bass. There's there's one way to look at it. Lawrence, how about you? What would you say is uh, something you have to, you know, really pay attention to? Well, you you have to start with the melody. Because without the tune, you don't have a tune. I mean, it's you know, the melody. Even if you change the articulation of it, I think the melody is the place to start. And I, I just look to the melody. I look to the, the bass line, and, um, then I try and find a place where it's where the voice works, you know. And it's not always easy with Beatles songs because especially when you get into the middle period, uh, for example, with Strawberry Fields. It's in the cracks. I mean, it's between A and B flat because they slowed one version down and sped up the other one and they met in the middle. Um, and so when I went to arrange it, I, I just couldn't find a place that it would fit until I realized that in, in Dagad that, that the E flat major seven chord, which of course you can't do in standard tuning in that voicing. And then everything, everything fell into place. But there's the intro. There's that seventh, actually it's a ninth voicing over a, over a D. I mean, it's a G, G9 over a D. And the, and the, the, the timbre is nice, it's like a cello kind of sound. Exactly. That it, 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 puts it in and, and and that's really I mean that's pretty close to the original key it's a little higher but but it it, it does it brings back it it resonates in the same way as the record does and that's not always not always necessary or appropriate but in this particular case it was the only way that I could find to arrange the song that was really true to my experience of the song um, and it you know, and I tend to favor lower register stuff. Um, you know, I just like the voice of the guitar when it's, you know, in that kind of... What, what I like about your arrangements in Dagga is they don't sound like Dagget. <laughs> well, I, well, thank you. And, and that's really because I'm applying my musical understanding to it, that I'm not just using Dagget as a drone tuning, but I'm just using it as another standard tuning and just finding where the notes are and not being bound by chord shapes. You know, I create my own whatever I need to, and, you know, it's, or, or look over Pierre ben Bensusen and kind of, you know, oh, that's how he does that. <laughs> you know, uh, Segovia, Segovia said to make a successful solo guitar arrangement of, of, of a piece that came from another originally another setting was it should sound better than the original it was based on that's that's tough to do <laughs> i mean especially with these tunes you know but 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 that that's a challenge is is how do you how do you make the arrangement compelling for the audience i was going to say to me i try to put my own personal stamp on it, honor the beauty of the melody. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, um, and it's probably the, 
the best uh, compliment I can get from a um, reviewer, um, you know, uh, critic is if, if someone will say that you play lyrically and I think about the lyrics to the tunes and I try to put that into what I am creating. So for example, with She's Leaving Home, you know, um, So again, I'm trying to take the beauty of the melody and really be expressive with it. Um, and almost as if I'm singing the lyrics and thank God for everyone that I'm not actually singing the lyrics because um, what I lack vocally, I try to make up for instrumentally. Um, and so, um, but then there are times like I was thinking about, and then Jeffrey, this came come back to what you were saying about the layering, because in this case, I'm playing the cello part uh, on the guitar uh, that, you know, um, and um, combining all of the parts and just trying to make it very musical, but honor the lyrics and the intent. Yeah, that's so sometimes the song just is what it is and it doesn't need, a, in this case, it's a little bit of reharmonization as I get going and I have more of a classical kind of technique that I was using on it, but sometimes I try to really reharmonize something and still keep the lyric in mind, so, like Blackbird, so that I will have. Um...
and then the last verse, etc. So I'm hearing the beauty of the melody, but I'm trying, you know, Paul sings it and plays it and it's perfect as what it is. But for me as a composer and a player, I try to find, um, to, you know, obviously the harmony is very reharmonized, but I'm, but I'm, the melody is always there to me. The melody is sacred. So it's a whole different approach because there is no way to take, um, you know, to take what Paul did is like I said, it's a perfect picture. So I'm trying to create another picture using what he wrote as, um, as the jumping off point. Yeah, I, my uh, by comparison, I mean, my arrangement of Blackbird is is again. I'm in Dagad in the key of A. And my benchmark was actually not Paul's version of it. I used to play that with Kenny Rankin. And Kenny's voice, I mean, he sang like he had a French horn in his throat. So, and I think it's important, not just the lyric, but, but the tone of the melody, kind of how the melody sits on the guitar and, and how, how vocal it can be. On the guitar, because you can, you know, the voice of the instrument is so important. Um, but, but I, I also, I mean, Tim's point about simplicity, and you don't have to add a lot. You don't have to put a lot in the arrangement if you know you can keep things simple. Um, It's such a beautiful melody. It, I, I chose not to try and reproduce what the Beatles did, but just did my own approach to that one. We're talking lots about the uh, the melody here, and obviously these these songs have such strong melodies. But there's also a lot of songs where, because they were very into such uh, big vocal arrangements, you know, choral kind of arrangements, sometimes it's almost hard to tell what the melody is. I mean, and the impression of the original recording is like, you know, it's it's multiple voices. And then, so I'm wondering, in cases like that, do you ever try to, I don't know, somehow suggest that quality of, of a bunch of voices in harmony on the guitar? Yeah, I mean, I did that on the little snippet I played of She's Leaving Home that is actually implying it. There's, or there are parts of it played out where the melody's on top, but it's, it's also, you know, it's also all there. Ever. If I'm coming up here, I've got a counterpoint going on that's implying different, you know, the, the different voices, the actual vocal thing. And 
Um, yeah. I mean, you can do it, like, if I needed someone. I mean... You know... Just with block harmonies, too. Where it gets tricky is when you've got counterpoint going on with this harmony counterpoint, but you've also got the melody as a separate thing. One thing about the arrangement now, they, you, there are tunes that are, have such a signature riff built into them, like uh, Day Tripper, right? I mean, you can't do a solo version of that tune without putting that bass line into it, you know? But a lot of songs, uh, less is more can be, they can also work. Uh, because, uh, if, like Lawrence said, if, if you have the melody and you really phrase that, uh, you don't have to have a really busy arrangement to have something that really works for the listener. I recently did an arrangement of a, uh, for a show of a Paul McCartney tune. I based it on uh, Sergio Mendez Brazil 66 arrangement. <laughs> That's the end of part one. Tune in to part two to learn more about this arrangement, our guests' varied approaches to rhythm and groove, and much more. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is brought to you by the team at Acoustic Guitar Magazine. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, joined for this episode by Jeffrey Pepper Rogers. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is directed and edited by Joey Lusterman. Tanya Gonzalez is our producer. Executive producers are Lizzie Lusterman and Stephanie Campos Dalbroy. Intro music for this episode performed by Lawrence Juber. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash acoustic-guitar-plus or find the link in the show notes for this episode. As a supporter, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes along with other special perks. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support.